0: All right, once again, it is my pleasure to be here. Go ahead and open your Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 10. We're going to start Romans chapter 10, verse 13. And while you're doing that, if you guys could just do me a favor, and I would love to see all your smiling faces. Let's just see. Can you smile? Can you smile for me? I still see some. Yeah, hey, hey, There we go. Everybody's breaking out. Doesn't that, isn't that better? That's just, isn't it just great to just kind of smile? For, even if somebody has to ask you to do it, it just, ah, it just feels so good. It's just, just so helpful. God gave us joy for a reason, right? We're going to read the text in, in a little bit here, but um, I know I already mentioned, you know, I, I love Jesus. I love talking about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, I love America. I love the concepts of freedom and liberty that really come from the gospel and the character of God. Um, I'm thrilled to be here today just to talk about Jesus and to talk about how Jesus and government and God, you know, how it all fits together with our culture and where we're at and what our role is supposed to be uh, in that I think it's obvious to all you guys that we're in a critical place in our nation right now. We have done and are doing horribly wicked deeds. At the same time, we've seen some victories that we weren't really expecting. You know, the overturn of Roe versus Wade. And uh, earlier this year, there was a high school football coach that his case went all the way to the Supreme Court because he was praying on the field. And um, that was um, won favorably, you know, for our side. There's all kinds of things happening on either end. The spiritual warfare in our nation is rapidly intensifying. And I don't know about you guys, but I want to see God work. I want to see God do a miracle. You know, we're talking about this Prop 3, and, um, you know, it really would take a miracle. It reminds me of Gideon and his army, and God kept stripping down his army, stripping down his army, until he had 300 people, and everybody knew that it was God that won the victory on that day. Man, I want to see God work in those ways in our culture today, in our country. I want to see God bring revival. I want to see God bring healing. I want to see God wake up his church and bring millions of souls to himself in our neighborhoods and our communities. And that's what we need. People need to be saved, and our nation needs to be saved. I don't want to see the people around us in our nation continually continue to plummet towards darkness and towards hell. You know, I I threw this um, other piece of news into my introduction last night just because, again, it's it's so relevant just to help us grasp the reality and the truth about where we are. The FBI has arrested, while heavily armed, a total of 13 pro-life leaders in our country in the last few weeks. Some of them raiding homes, you know, their, women, their wives and their, their wife and children screaming, you know, as, as they were taken away. So here's these people that are trying to save innocent babies and they're being arrested by the federal government who is murdering babies, right? Woe to them that call good evil and evil good. And that's what's happening right now in our culture. I want to see God restore our nation, I want to see God heal this land. So what does it take to do that? How can we have a role in that? As I was researching for the sermon, I realized that the very ingredients that were foundational to our nation are exactly what we need to embrace if we're going to see our nation saved. Now, it's fascinating to me. The things that we need to do to save America are all things that we're already supposed to be doing for the kingdom of God. We possess all of these ingredients that were foundational to our nation. We have here today in this church and in this room. So what are those ingredients? What will it take to save America? What will it take to save the people around us? What does it look like to aggressively embrace those ingredients? And what does that have to do with me? That's what I want to talk about today. And whether or not we choose to embrace these ingredients will determine... Really, whether or not we're right with Jesus and whether or not our nation will be saved. So, let me give you a couple tips on how the sermon is going to work this morning. You know, it's going to be intense if there's actually instructions uh, at the beginning. Uh, But basically, for each of the foundational ingredients we're going to look at, we're going to look at three. For each of the foundational ingredients we're going to look at, uh, we're going to examine their role in early America, and then we're going to apply them to today. In order to do that, we're going to look at a lot of history, okay? So, hopefully, you like history. If not, Hopefully it'll be interesting for you anyway. And I just, um, to be transparent, the majority of the information I have in these slides comes from David Barton in the Wall Builders Ministry. Um, <clears throat> I don't want to be guilty of plagiarism. So I did a bunch of research, you know, with his material and compiled the information <coughs> excuse me, that we are going to be looking at today. And then the second point of instruction is just that this first point, sermon's a little top-heavy. So this first point is going to be the longest you know, if, if we're in this first point and you start glancing at your watch, getting real nervous, don't worry. Number two is shorter, and then number three is the shortest. So it gets progressively shorter as we go along. So I just wanted to give you guys a heads up with that. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get into, into it. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. God, thank you for this church. Lord, thank you so much that I can be here. Thank you for Pastor Barber and Pastor CJ, Lord, the other staff, and just the work that they're doing. God, Andrew and the college ministry and in the heart that is here to reach the lost around them and to disciple believers. God, I know that you have a special plan, a special place, a purpose for this church here. God, you've called them to reach this community. And God, they're being faithful to you. And Lord, I just ask that you would reward their faithfulness. God, I pray that they would see spiritual blessings coming to this place because of their faithfulness. And God, I pray that you would touch hearts in the sermon today. God, God, use me. God, I want to be used by you to accomplish your purpose, your will. God, I want to be used by you, uh, Lord, to communicate your message. And so, Father, I pray that you would accomplish your desire, your will through me this morning. Touch our hearts as we look at your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So the first ingredient that was foundational to America that we need to aggressively embrace if we're going to, really, if we're going to obey God but if we're going to see America saved is the gospel. Let's go ahead and read our text this morning, and we're going to come back to this verse, but Romans ten, thirteen and fourteen says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How shall they call on him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they believe in him excuse me, how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? Like I said, we'll come back to that. But I want to start this point by looking at the role that the gospel played in early America. I believe that the gospel is the greatest building block of our nation. Now that may be a bold statement, but I want to try to prove it to you this morning. So to examine the role that the gospel played in early America, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the backstory of the Pilgrims and Puritans. We're going to look at the governing documents of the early colonies. And we're going to look at the First Great Awakening. So let's get into it. Let's look at the gospel and the backstory of the Pilgrims and Puritans. In England, as the Reformation was purifying believers from the ritualism, the formalism, and the corruption of the state-run church, two groups began to emerge who were embracing the true, simple gospel of Jesus Christ. Those were the Puritans and the Separatists. The Puritans saw the corruption of the state church, tried to fix it. Separatists saw the corruption of the state church and said, no, it's too far gone. Uh, we're going to get out. The separatists are the pilgrims, the one who came over on the Mayflower. So these two groups would become the founders of all the northeastern colonies in America, which were the most predominant uh, American settlements. Now the reason that they ended up leaving is really what's key to our understanding here today. During the late 1500s and the early 1600s, Queen Elizabeth and subsequently King James I vigorously persecuted um, any believers that did not conform to the state-run church. Especially King James, separatist activity was illegal under his rule, which separatist activity to the separatists was uh, living out their love for the true gospel of Jesus Christ, free from man's inventions, as they termed it. But separatists were meeting in underground churches with prison or death, if their end, if discovered. William Bradford, who would go on to be the governor of the group from the Mayflower, was forced at the age of 14 to make a choice between the separatist movement and his parents. He chose his faith and was forced to leave home. So what ended up happening to the separatists? Well, due to persecution, they fled to a Dutch city named Leiden. They made a church there, kind of were established there for a few years. They made several attempts to go back and evangelize England because it's, you know, that's where their hearts were. They had a heart for those people. But they continually encountered persecution, so they made the decision as a church to leave for the New World. And on September 6, 1620, the Mayflower left uh, the harbor. So it's clearly evident from these, from what we've looked at here in history, that the gospel was the entire reason that the pilgrims came and founded the colonies here in America. And I wanted to, I want to stick this in here because we're going to kind of be following this train, this trail as we go along. The gospel fruit that happened in each one of these situations. So look at the gospel fruit uh, in in the history that we've talked about here today. Even in persecution, the gospel was building and a, and a um, gospel center, Christ-centered church was thriving. Not only that, these people left and founded an entire nation because of the gospel. So that's the backstory of the people who predominantly founded America. The Puritans did come over several years later as well. But now you know who they were and why they came here. Uh, so now let's look at the influence of the gospel in the early governing documents in the early colonies. So... Um, <clears throat> The first charter of Virginia, which was penned by a minister, Reverend William Hocklett, states that the work of the colonies of Virginia was to propagate the Christian religion to such people as yet live in darkness. The Mayflower Compact, written in 1620, which is the first governing document of the pilgrims, declared that what they had undertaken, their voyage to America, was for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. In 1643, 20,000 pilgrims from Massachusetts Bay organized the New England Confederation, stating that their purpose was to advance the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and to enjoy the liberties of the gospel thereof in purities and peace. In 1636, Reverend Thomas Hooker took his congregation and settled the Connecticut Valley. Three years later, the settlers wrote the Fundamental Orders of Connecticut, which begins with them covenanting under God to maintain and preserve the liberty and the purity of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, which we now profess. So these are just a few of the colonial founding documents. And it doesn't get much plainer than this. The gospel was so foundational to our nation that it was specifically listed as the purpose for these colonies being established. Notice again the fruit of the gospel. It was so influential that entire societies and governments were being formed because of it and based on it. Now finally, as we examine the role that the gospel played in early America, let's look at the role of the gospel in the First Great Awakening. So in the mid-1730s, the gospel again worked wonders in American culture. From 1700 to 1730 was a time of spiritual darkness in America. Americans, especially in the younger generation, uh, were falling into sin and secularism. Religious fervor was drying out. Increase Mather, the first guy in this picture, he's a Puritan minister, he said, Many of the rising generation are profane drunkards, swearers, licentious, and scoffers at the powers of godliness. Several other ministers, Jonathan Dickinson, Samuel Blair, Jonathan Edwards, began addressing the depraved state of the culture, and they started what would become known as the First Great Awakening. Now, as Jonathan Edwards observed these issues in his town, he addressed them by preaching the gospel deliberately and powerfully in a series of sermons called. Uh, justification by faith alone, stressing the importance of an immediate personal spiritual rebirth. In six months, 300 of the city's 1,100 population came to faith in Christ, and it completely changed the dynamic of his town. And that's what happened all across the nation during the Great Awakening. It was small towns having revival, people being saved, and it paints the picture of a national revival. The Great Awakening went on to be one of the world's greatest revivals. Hundreds of thousands of people came to faith in Christ, and it unified our nation in preparation for the war for independence. Again, look at the fruit that the gospel is producing. There's only three million people in America at that time. So for hundreds of thousands of them to come to Christ, that's a a high percentage. So I think it's safe to say that the gospel is foundational in in the foundation of our nation. When you consider the fact that the Puritans and the Pilgrims came to America specifically because of persecution of the gospel of Jesus Christ, along with the fact that the written purpose of our founding colonies was the gospel of Jesus Christ, and examine the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the First Great Awakening leading up to the Revolution, I think it's only appropriate to say that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the greatest building block of our nation. Now, Here's where this comes up to modern day. We're kind of, we're approaching some application here. If the gospel was so foundational in the formation of a prosperous and healthy America, it stands to reason that it must be influential again in order for America to be restored to a healthy and prosperous condition. You're just saying the song, it's still the cross? Well, it's still the cross for America. It's still the gospel that's going to save us. An influential gospel is our hope. That's all, I mean, that's all we have. We've looked at what an influential gospel has produced in our history, right? The birth of our nation, the structure of our nation, revival in our nation. That's gospel fruit on a level that is rarely seen. Do you guys ever look around and ask, why aren't we seeing this today? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why aren't we seeing this today? I mean, we preach the gospel in our churches Pastor Barber preaches the gospel, preach the gospel at my church, all the churches that I go around and preach the gospel, the, that I preach in, those are churches that preach the gospel. I mean, if the evangelical church in America is doing one thing right, arguably it could be there's an emphasis on preaching the gospel. Now, there may be slight flavors and variations, but there's a heavy emphasis in evangelical America right now among churches that are biblically-based churches to be preaching the gospel. But where is this this radical gospel fruit that we see in our history. You know, if, if we're preaching the gospel like Jonathan Edwards and others did, then why aren't 300 out of every 1,100 people in Ann Arbor coming to know Christ as their personal Savior? We know the gospel isn't the problem. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel has saved souls throughout history. It rescued Saul of Tarsus. It turned the world upside down in Acts. So what is different? What is the problem today? that we're not seeing this kind of radical gospel fruit? simple answer that I have is that the gospel has ceased to be influential in our culture. Is it the gospel's fault? No. We already established it's the power of God and salvation. Is it the world's fault? No. I mean, the world is the world. The world is going to be evil. The world wouldn't be where it is right now if the gospel had been influential in our culture. Is it our fault? Well, let's look at a little bit more history. We'll tie it in with our text that we read at the beginning, and we get a better look at what the problem is and what we need to do to change. Let's go ahead and read our text again. The Bible says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How shall they call on him of whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? I find an interesting distinction between America and Edwards' time and America in our time. Between 1700 and 1730, that time of wickedness in America—this is from the Library of Congress—75 to 80 percent of Americans attended church regularly. So if a pastor like Jonathan Edwards was going to address the issues of the culture by preaching the gospel in his church, 75 to 80% of Americans were going to hear it. Now, maybe there's some churches that weren't really faithful to preach the gospel, but even then, all the sermons were circulated in the newspapers, so you can bump that up a little bit as far as the number of people that are hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's, that's pretty high numbers. Look at the, 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 our scripture verse for this text, How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? The gospel will save, but people have to hear it. And in this day and age, in Jonathan Edwards' time, the time of the Great Awakening, time of early America... Americans were hearing the gospel. 75 to 80% of them on a regular basis were hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. In 2019, 34% of Americans attended church once or twice a month, and that includes the denominations that aren't really faithful to preach the gospel. So um, it was difficult to do a little bit more digging into this, so just kind of speak hypothetically. Cut it in half would be about 17%. Add back in, you know, social media, Facebook. uh, You know, we do do some some track passing out, some door-to-door stuff. Might crank it up to 25%. 25% of Americans are hearing the gospel. So if a pastor today is going to address the issues of the culture by preaching the gospel in his church, which is what we do, which is what a lot of the churches in America do, only 25%, if that, of Americans are being exposed to the gospel of jesus christ so what's different far fewer people are hearing the saving message of jesus christ so what what's the problem why isn't the gospel influential in our culture compared to these christians we are failing to get the gospel to the masses they aren't coming here to hear it we have to go out there and tell it you know maybe maybe the christians in our history had it easy because they could preach the gospel in their churches and everybody was hearing it. But their grandparents didn't have it easy, who were persecuted for their faith over in England and came over here and established this nation. Our job is to get the gospel to the masses, whatever it takes. Whatever the circumstances are around us doesn't change a great commission, which was to go and to teach. They preached it in church. We need to get it outside of church. The reality is this simple and it's this sobering, that we will not see the radical fruit of the gospel that we all long to see. We will not see that revival in our nation that we all long to see unless we do a better job of getting the gospel to the masses. There's a quote I learned in college when I was at a campus says, if we do what we've always done, we'll be who we've always been. We can't continue to treat evangelism and the gospel and sharing our faith the same way that, we've all, that we have over the last decades and expect that we're going to see radical gospel fruit in our culture because people are not hearing the gospel. We're going to continue to plummet towards destruction and hell as a people and as a nation unless we change how effective we are at getting the gospel to the masses. Again, the gospel will save. I'm harping on it because it's important and and I want us to grasp it. But our verse makes it clear they have to hear it before it can change them. So how do we do that? How do we get the gospel to the masses? I'm glad you asked. Uh, I want to tell you about one more person, and then we'll move on to our second ingredient, uh, which is prayer. And don't forget, the second one's a little bit shorter. I want to talk about George Whitefield. George Whitefield is somebody whose example every one of us can follow. George Whitefield was a preacher during the First Great Awakening, and here's some crazy facts about George Whitefield. He uh, traveled to America seven times. He would start in Georgia, travel on horseback all the way up to Massachusetts, and he would stop in every little town along the way and preach the gospel. That town would have revival, and the local pastors would carry it on. And he would go back down a different way, and he did that a total of seven times. He preached over 18,000 sermons. It's estimated that 10 million Americans heard him. Now, like I said, there's only 3 million in America at the time, so he's, he's, he's reaching multiple people multiple times. Um, again, I already mentioned Georgia and Massachusetts seven, seven times. 80% of Americans heard him preach. What's interesting about George Whitfield is because he had a, an unorthodox preaching style, he was very animated, you know, kind of loud in his preaching. So pastors in the formal religion of America at the time, a lot of pastors wouldn't let him preach in their churches. So he took his preaching to the open fields, to the town squares, to the places of work. He would preach to the miners as they were working on the job. His largest crowd was at a park called the Boston Commons, and it was was uh, over 25,000 people heard him preach, and uh, God blessed him with some vocal cords, man, because they didn't have microphones or anything uh, during that time. George Whitefield was getting the gospel to the masses, and it was powerfully changing lives. George Whitefield won hundreds of thousands of people to Christ. Now, you might be asking, what in the world do I have in common with George Whitefield? How is he an example for me? George Whitefield was one individual who obeyed God with his gospel responsibility. I think that's the best way to summarize him. He's one individual who obeyed God with his gospel responsibility. Where are you at with that? If we're going to see the gospel radically change our culture, I believe we need to evaluate ourselves and ask, have I been faithful to propagate the gospel intentionally, boldly, unashamedly, And openly we have all been guilty of (laughs) self-censoring we've all been guilty of self-censoring we've got to stop self-censoring on everything from the gospel to abortion to marriage whatever everything from our biblical worldview we we have to stop self-censoring on but especially the gospel because according to our text it's on me and it's on you to help people hear the gospel so that they can believe that was our longest point. That was a bit of a bear. Thank you for sticking with me. That's the first ingredient that we need to aggressively embrace if we're going to see um, our nation saved and restored and if we're going to be obedient Christians to the Lord. The second ingredient that was foundational to our nation that we need to aggressively embrace is prayer. Go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And we're going to read the text here in a minute. But I want to describe a scenario to you. a quiet, and peaceable life lived out in godliness and honesty. Doesn't that sound serene? A quiet and peaceable life lived out in godliness and honesty. That's what's described in our text. So let's go ahead and read it. First Timothy chapter two, verses one and two. The Bible says, I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable, there it is, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. In all godliness and honesty. You know what's fascinating is that that description really actually accurately describes what we have had in America for the last 300 years. We have been able to live out our godly lives in peace. Nobody has come after us, and the government has not come after us because we're living out our godly lives. And for the most part, the culture around us had a healthy respect for Christians. You weren't abnormal. If you were a Christian, this text says the way to achieve that type of life is to pray. Well, pray for who? It says everyone pray for all men, but specifically mentioned is government officials. How do we pray? Well, it says first of all. So we need to pray like it's our greatest weapon. We need to put priority, place a great priority on prayer. Now, does prayer always produce this outcome? It doesn't seem to. I'm assuming persecuted Christians are really committed to praying for their leaders, but they're still in persecuted situations. But I can guarantee that this type of life never happens without prioritizing and valuing prayer. As a matter of fact, the people who founded and established our nation greatly valued prayer and prioritized it. And that's why we've been able to have this as our reality. That's, it is proof that this verse is true. That is why we've been able to enjoy godly lives in peace for the last 300 years. So let's look at some examples of how genuine prayer was foundational to our nation. Let's start by looking at colonial America. Here are some examples. Uh, colonial, uh, excuse me, Colonists declared days of prayer during droughts, Indian attacks, and threats from other nations. In Colonial Connecticut, settlers proclaimed by legal authority a day in early spring for fasting and prayer. The governor customarily selected Good Friday as the annual spring fast. In 1668, the Virginia House of Burgesses in Jamestown passed an ordinance stating the 27th of August appointed a day of humiliation, fasting, and prayer to implore God's mercy. Not only did Colonial America prioritize prayer, but the Continental Congress Uh, prioritized prayer as well and declared two things. They declared days of fasting, humiliation, and prayer and days of thanksgiving and praise. During the War for Independence, the Continental Congress issued on eight separate occasions days of fasting, humiliation, and prayer. They issued on seven separate occasions days of thanksgiving and praise. So there's 15 days total that are issued in in that, uh, I think it's about an eight-year time period where prayer is being declared by the national government. So there's an incredible emphasis placed on prayer here in early America. In addition to Colonial America and the Continental Congress prioritizing prayer in early America, it was common for presidents to issue days of fasting prayer and humiliation or fasting proclamation during times of trial. Here's a few. John Adams did it during the war with France twice. Uh, James Madison did it twice during the War of 1812. President John Tyler did it at the death of the former president. During a pandemic, President Zachary Taylor did it. Uh, president James Buchanan declared a, a fasting proclamation right before the Civil War as he was sensing the tension starting to rise in the culture. And then Abraham Lincoln did it um, in the middle of the Civil War. And Lincoln's prayer proclamation is absolutely fascinating. I, I'm going I'm to go through just a little bit of it here because you guys, you guys need to see this. But before I dive into that, are you guys picking up on something There's a whole lot of words, there's a whole lot of fasting mentioned here, and there's a whole lot of humiliation mentioned here. Those are two things that really seem to be missing from our national day of prayer, you know, that we have now. You know, we do national day of prayer stuff. But I mean, when's the last time we had a national leader, a president, stand up and say, We need to confess our national sins and repent of our wickedness as individuals and as a nation before God? and ask him to heal and forgive. Even, even when Vice President Mike Pence, who you know, is a Christian man, got up and did the um, National Day of Prayer speech a few years ago, and he quoted Chronicles, but he, he said, you know, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then will I uh, hear from heaven and heal their land. And he skipped, turn from their wicked ways, and forgive their sins. So this is something that was highly emphasized this days of humiliation. So several of these prayer proclamations that would specifically state um, refrain from recreational activity on this day. That's how serious they were about repenting of their sins. And that's how the, the leaders of the nation recognized that the biggest hindrance to God's blessing on the nation was the individual and the corporate sins of the nation and that they need, we needed to repent of our sins. Abraham Lincoln understood that the Civil War, in his opinion, the Civil War was God's punishment, God's wrath on our nation for the sin of slavery. And this is what he said. This won't take long, I promise. It looks big, but it's not. Uh, March 13, 1863. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We'd all agree to that. We've been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, in wealth, in power, as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. And we have vainly imagined that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Boy, you might as well be giving a speech today. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. So the question for us is, How's our prayer life? How's our fasting life? Have you ever tried fasting? Have you ever fasted? I encourage you, give it a try. Do a little Bible study on it. Fast for a meal, fast for a couple meals, fast for a day. You know, let God grow you in your fasting. But if you have never fasted, I'm telling you, you're missing out on a blessing. Fast and watch God work. Watch God work in your heart. Watch God work in your circumstances. Um, it is. It is. It has just been so joyful for me times that I have you know, fasting and be able to, to stay focused on the Lord during that time. Just what God has done through that. They understood its necessity in our nation, and that's why we have the blessings that we have today. And unless we return to prioritizing prayer, fasting, and humiliation in our nation today, we are going to continue down this downward spiral of where we're at. Clearly it was fasting, humiliation, and prayer that brought us through so many calamities in the past and restored God's hand of blessing on our nation when we drifted from him. That's what we need to happen today. 1 Timothy 2 is designed to flip our entire perspective on prayer, to make us see it with gravity, to make us prioritize it, to do it first and then work, not say, well, I've tried everything else, now all I can do is pray. Prayer is our greatest weapon. We, just, we think of it so backwards all the time, we need to flip it around. If prayer was so influential In the formation and growth of a prosperous and healthy America, saving us from calamities in the past, it stands to reason it must be influential to restore America and save us from um, our calamities today. All right, here we go. Here's the final one, the final ingredient that was foundational in America that we have to aggressively embrace if we're going to see America saved and restored, and that is stewardship. The text for this is Matthew chapter 25 verses 14 through 28 we're not going to take the time to read that i'm going to tell you what it is Um, it's the story of the talents the parable of the talents and what jesus describes is this there's a master he comes to three of his servants he gives the first servant five talents which is a talent is you know a unit of money it's a lot of money he gave the first uh servant five talents the second servant two talents the third servant one talent and then he leaves The first servant is a good steward. He invests his money, he ends up with ten. Second servant is a good steward. He invests his money, he ends up with four. Third servant says, woe is me. Uh, You know, I can't do anything with this or I don't want to do anything with this. He did not steward. He bared his money. When the master came back, he rewarded the first two servants and he condemned and criticized the third servant for not stewarding. Now, it is very clear from Scripture that God gave us the institution of human government. If you're not there, talk to me afterwards. I'll be happy to show you how that is reality. It's also very clear from history that God gave us American government. So just like the talents in this parable, American government is a gift from God and therefore something that we need to take seriously our responsibility to steward. Somebody will steward your nation, your state, your county, your city, your community, your schools. Who will it be? We have the opportunity to, to be that person. So it's not going to surprise you that Christians were heavily involved in stewarding our government in early America. So let's look at the role that Christian stewardship played in early America so we can see how to apply it today. I have one list I'm going to read for you guys. That's it, all right? So we got this. Um, this actually isn't going to work very well. Usually I usually have a clicker. I can flip through all of them. They pile up on each other as they go through it. But basically, it's a slide of a whole bunch of pastors that were influential in stewarding early America. I figured, man, if we're going to show how Christians were engaged in stewarding early in our nation, let's look at the pastors. So I'm going to read the list for you. Um, sorry, I can't flip through the names, but here's, here's the list. In 1606, Reverend Richard Hocklet was a member of Virginia's governing body. In 1619, Reverend William Wickham served in Virginia's original General Assembly, which was the first elected governing body in America. <clears throat> in 1620, Elder William Brewster created the Mayflower Compact, which is the first governing document written in America. In 1636, six pastors helped found Harvard, which is the first successful college in America. In 1636, Reverend Roger Williams, founder of the First Baptist Church in America, and Reverend John Clark, founded the colony of Rhode Island. In 1641, Reverend Nathaniel Ward wrote the Massachusetts Body of Liberties, which included the first Bill of Rights in America. Quaker minister William Penn founded Pennsylvania and wrote its frame of government. In 1692, Reverend John Wise and Reverend Increase Mather helped establish due process rights in the judicial system. Baptist pastors Isaac Backus and John Leland advocated for religious freedom, both state and national levels. Leland worked with Thomas Jefferson and James Madison to ensure that religious freedom was added to the Bill of Rights so we wouldn't have a First Amendment today if it wasn't for these pastors. Reverend John Witherspoon and Reverend jo- Robert Payne signed the Declaration of Independence. Several ministers signed the Constitution. So it is painfully undeniable that Christians in early America were engaged in stewarding God's institution of government as it applied to them. And if we want to obey God, but if we want to see America saved, we have to get back to stewarding the country that God has given to us. So a couple points here. Let's get practical. How can we steward? How can we be involved in stewarding? First, we can vote. You say, oh, I know, I need, I need to vote. Well, there's 80 million evangelicals in America. 40 to 50 million do not vote. That's from the Barner Research Group. You can check out the numbers. Um, in Virginia, in 2021, a bunch of churches got together. 312 churches did voter registration. They registered 77,000 new voters. The governor that just won, who prays in Jesus' name, was elected by uh, 66,000 votes. So, because the church got engaged in Virginia, they were able to put somebody who prays in Jesus' name uh, into office. It's, it's extremely important that us as Christians take our beliefs to the polling station and vote. The second thing that we can do is run for office. You say, Why would I want to run for office? Well, that's another way to take the gospel outside of the four walls of the church. You are giving yourself, you're coming into a position of influence. Those of you that work jobs, that are CEOs, that run companies, you guys know that because of your position, you have the opportunity to influence so many more lives than you would had you just you know, stayed at home and uh, done nothing with your life. So acquiring a position of influence is a, an excellent way to be able to introduce more people to Jesus Christ. It's also important because it gives the rest of us better people to vote for. Uh, moral candidates are a really, really important thing. Uh, Reverend Jedediah Morris, is a quote here. We, I won't read it, but it basically says, "...it is extremely crucial." that Christians elect leaders that God would approve. There's no other way that God's going to bless our country unless we have leaders that God approves. And then the third way that we can uh, steward is by investing in our current leaders for Christ. That's what One-to-One Capital Connection does, right? That's, that's taking the gospel to our elected officials. That's praying for our elected officials. That's um, helping our elected officials make good decisions. That's investing in our current leaders for Christ. So I'm going to close this point With this quote from Charles Finney, says, The church must take right ground in regard to politics. God cannot sustain this free and blessed country, which we love and pray for, unless the church will take right ground. Politics are part of a religion in such a country as this, and Christians must do their duty to the country as part of their duty to God. It seems sometimes as if the foundations of the nation are becoming rotten, and Christians seem to act as if they think God does not see what they do in politics. You guys know anybody like that? Uh, But I tell you that he does see it, and he will bless or curse this nation according to the course that they take. If Christians stewarding government was so influential in the formation and and the growth of a prosperous and healthy America, it stands to reason that it must be influential again to restore America to a healthy and prosperous condition. It really comes back to this question. Somebody will steward your nation your state, your county, your city, your community, your schools, who will it be? Are we going to let it be the, the crazy people that think that murdering babies is okay, and killing a baby as it comes out of the mother's womb is okay, and that's completely acceptable in society. And the people that think that I can be you know any gender creation thing under the sun that I want to be, and, and marriage doesn't matter, and you know traditional marriage and the nuclear family, they don't matter. But we have the opportunity to steward and the choice of whether we're going to let those people steward or whether we are going to put the mantle on and become stewards here in our nation. And we will not see America return to God unless we as Christians begin to steward once again our nation. So the gospel, prayer, stewardship, three ingredients that were foundational to our nation that in order to save America from the path she is on, we must aggressively embrace and prayerfully seek how to make them real in our individual lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you for your word. God, thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to, to, to preach and to share. And Lord, I know that that was a lot of information, but God, I do believe that it was things that we need to know, it's things that we need to hear. It's areas that we all need to be challenged in. And God, I ask that you would work as we close this service. God, work in our hearts. Move and, and direct us toward what you would have us to do. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you go ahead and stand with me, by your heads and close your eyes. We'll have a pastor come up here and um, run an invitation or close the service, however he would like. Um, I don't know how God has spoken to you today. Maybe it was a, about your. Maybe it was evaluating your commitment to proclaiming the gospel. Maybe He prompted your heart about prioritizing prayer. Maybe He showed you how He wants you to be a steward. I hope and pray that God worked in your heart this morning, and I encourage you to take action. A, a pastor that I know says. Uh, that the devil doesn't care what God does in your heart so long as you do nothing about it. Now is the challenge to do. If we came here today and we heard all this stuff and we don't do anything about it, was it a waste of time? So let's get real with God this morning and change some things in our lives so that we can change the people around us.